welcome. Uh, my name is Bruce Case. I have the uh, great privilege of serving as uh, one of your elders here and the even greater privilege of opening the Word of God together with you this morning. As, Luke said, or as uh, Keith said, we will be in the book of Ruth, um, but before we go there, let's first go to the Lord in prayer. Bow with me if you would. Father, we've come to you with our praises today, and now we come to you with our needs. We come because you desire to comfort your people, and we ask now that you do so. Father, we've had three funerals in just the last eight weeks. And while we mourn our losses and weep with those who weep, we thank you that each memorial was rightly termed a celebration of life. We thank you that Jerry Medley was such a godly brother, such an encouragement, even as we now ask you to continue to comfort Sue as she adjusts to life without her partner. We thank you that Cheryl Scrivens was such a glorious and consistent encourager of others, even as her body was failing her. And we ask you now to be closer than a brother to Walt as he adjusts to life without her. And Father, we were so blessed to have Bob Shaw among us, not for years, but for decades. And we now plead with you to be a husband to Suzanne and draw near to her. Father, we have brothers and sisters in our midst that are even now battling anxiety and depression. We know some of their stories, but not all, because it's not always shared. People suffer in silence. Father God, I pray that they might feel safe among your people and confide and ask an individual prayer. And would you draw close to them and lift them out of the pit and set their feet on a solid rock. Make your promises to them real and fresh and precious. And Father, we also lift up marriages that need your help. We're so thankful for the many sound marriages in this room, but we're aware that there are tensions and hurts and sins that mark some marriages. And Father God, we just lift them up before you and ask that you give them strength and hope to live out their covenant vows, not in their own strength, but in that which only you can provide. We pray for you. We plead with you. We intercede that you might break cycles of blame and cycles of, of hurtful behaviors that just make it so hard to heal. We want to see glorious covenant marriages that reflect your great faithfulness to your bride, the church. And Father, finally, we pray for those who are receiving discouraging medical reports. We ask for wisdom for the medical community as they care for those that we love, even as we ask you for a healing touch, that you would give them more time of health and energy, more time to worship, more time to fellowship, more time to declare your praise. And now, Lord, as we open your word together, would you watch over your word? Would you guard my heart and my mind and my mouth that I speak only what brings glory to you 
and what is faithful to the text. And would you give people receptive hearts, eager hearts, to hear what you have to say to them this morning through your precious and inspired word. I pray people would be encouraged and challenged and moved by what a kind and a good God you are. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us know the story of how our parents met and got married. Might have been neighbors, a friend might have set them up, they might have met in college or, or some other setting like that. But sometimes they're really interesting stories and they kind of become part of the family story. And they're retold at birthdays or anniversaries or Christmases or whenever the people in that family get together. And eventually, if you're that kind of family, it gets passed on to subsequent generations. So you might know how your grandparents met. You might even know how your great-grandparents met. It's kind of fun sometimes to know family history like that. Well, the book of Ruth probably started out just that way. Just kind of a, an oral tradition. This is how mom and dad met. This is how grandma and grandpa met. And it would have been told, if you know the story, with, with good humor and, and some laughter and maybe a wink or two along the way. There, there's some interesting twists and turns in the book of Ruth. But after a few generations, the significance of what God had been doing in that meeting between Ruth and Boaz and in their marriage and in the family that they started, it would take a few generations, but suddenly their eyes would be opened to the fact that God was doing far more than any character in this book could have possibly asked or imagined. They knew they had needs. Ruth was a, a destitute widow. They had no, great, no, no idea how great their needs really were. And the book of Ruth begins to unfold that story for us. If you want a good way of summarizing uh, what we're going to see in this book, uh, always turned, in fact, I think the first time I heard the book of Ruth preached, they used this illustration, and I've found none better, so I use it. There's a hymn by William Cooper uh, entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And one of the verses in that hymn says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And it's a wonderful summary of the book of Ruth. Uh, there's a great deal of frowning providence as the book opens. But soon there's a smiling face that emerges. And, and the smile that we're going to see in Ruth is bigger and better and lasts longer than anyone could have ever anticipated. This is, in a word, a gospel-saturated book. Now, Cooper uses a word like providence. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So some of you are familiar with the term. You might even use it in conversation every now and then, but we don't use it much. So let me make sure we're on the same page. The word simply refers to the fact that God works in and through and rules over all creation so that absolutely everything that he wants to happen, happens. For example, Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So you can have something as impersonal as light or darkness, 
and they're created by God, which means that he rules over physics and chemistry and every last atom in the universe. They do his bidding. And then you have things as personal as well-being or calamity, or in our story, the death of three husbands. And God says, I rule over that too. Jesus declared it in such a way that you can explain it to a child. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. It's true. I want us to understand this clearly because while there is a great deal of frowning providence in the opening verses of Ruth, there follows behind it, very closely behind it, an emerging smile. And God is orchestrating it all. It's the clear conviction of Naomi, who's one of the central characters. And I hope to show you in the weeks to come that recognizing and submitting to the providence of God, even when it's a hard providence, positions you to see that smile and to welcome the good providence that is following on its heels. Ruth is rightly placed in your Bibles chronologically speaking. It fits between Judges and 1 Samuel. If you're looking for it even now, it is the eighth book of the Old Testament. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab with his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's a lot of frowning providence to open a book. It's a lot of personal pain, personal loss. Some of it's obvious. Starts with a famine, creates refugees, as the people have to leave their country to seek food. It's followed by the death of a husband and then the death of both sons. That's a lot, but there's more hidden in the story. First, we're told this was the time of the judges. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know this is a very dark time in the time of Israel. Um, the very last chapter in the book uh, kind of captures what the problem was. It says, the very last verse rather, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The generation that had seen the great works of God parted seas, manna in the wilderness, crossing the, the Jordan, capturing Jericho. The, the generation that had seen those things had passed. And somehow their children did not pick up on the grandeur and the greatness of God. And they began to do things their way. Every man doing what was right in his own eyes. So that's the setting for Ruth. It's a dark time overall. It's a lawless time with generation after generation just reaping bitter fruit of having turned away from God. 
And all famines are bad. But note where this one takes place. Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally translates house of bread. And there is no bread in the house of bread. That is the severity and the pointedness of God's judgment and God's discipline on a wayward Israel. And then, when this family left their home and their people, they didn't go just anywhere. They went to Moab, of all places. This is significant because the Moabites had opposed Israel at every turn. They did not greet them with any bread and water. They did not help them on their journey. After things were kind of settled, they then tried to seduce them by inviting them to their feasts and trying to intermarry. Um, it was Balak, king of Moab, who had summoned Balaam to curse the Israelites, if you recall that story from Numbers. And as a result, God speaks through Moses and gives the people this command. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. But that's where this family goes. They go to Moab. Elimelech dies. The pain and the destitution for Naomi and her sons continue. It increases. She's now a refugee. She's now a widow. She's in a foreign land where she has no business being. And as nice as it might seem that Naomi's sons find wives, it's not nice. They're Moabites. They're not to marry them. There, there's general prohibitions against intermarriage uh, with, with the other peoples in the Old Testament. There's specific prohibitions. Don't go to Moab. Don't seek their welfare. So that too, while it looks initially good, they, they, they found wives. It's not good. Ten years after they marry, ten apparently childless years, more frowning providence. Children are valued, highly valued in that culture, and they have none. And then, perhaps wanting to just put a literary emphasis on all the loss that Naomi has experienced, the section ends with Naomi simply being referred to as the woman. We know her name. Her name's repeated. Her name is there throughout the story. But at this point, the author says, I want you to know how much she's lost. She's just the woman. Lost her identity. She's not, a, she's not a mother anymore. She's not a wife anymore. She's not in the covenant community anymore. She's a broken, widowed refugee. And she's just the woman. And I want to remind you, this is not a parable. This is someone's life. She lost everything. And I just want your imagination to go there for a minute, to empathize with her, to feel something of what she would have felt. In verse 1, she has a home, a people, a husband, two sons. By verse 5, they're all gone. So what does she do? in the face of this hard providence from God. Shake her fist, curse him, turn away to follow the gods of Moab because at least apparently they gave their people food. 
We continue on in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. If you're working in the fields of Moab, you're either gleaning or working as a hired hand, and in either case, you're simply talking about degrees of poverty. Naomi is an older woman. She would really rather not be out in a hot and dangerous place doing hard physical labor simply to survive, and so apparently... The frowning, the frowning providence had continued. But note what the author tells us she heard. That the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Not she heard it rained that summer and the crops were starting to come up. No, she doesn't go with a naturalistic explanation. She goes with a profoundly theological explanation. The Lord had visited his people. The Lord is giving us food. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Naomi and Job have their theology straight. There's no coincidences in life. There's no sparrow that falls, and God says, oops. Let alone a husband and two sons. And it's this view of God one who is sovereign when things are hard, that's going to give her so much comfort when things become good because that's God too. So Naomi has set out to return to the land of Judah, to Bethlehem, with her two daughters-in-law. They're on their way back. It seemingly does not occur to her for some time. There's really no point in these two younger women coming back with her. There's no future for them in Bethlehem. They should return to their families in Moab. They should remarry. They should start life over. Now, that's been true all along. But it seems like they're halfway back before the fog lifts and Naomi comes to her senses and she says, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you 
as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. It's, it's remarkable to me that you can be so swallowed up in grief that you're halfway back from Moab to Bethlehem before you realize there's no point in them coming with me. And yet, say, you know something? The Lord deals kindly, and the Lord gives rest. The, the words that she gives to her two daughters-in-law speak of a high view in, in Naomi's heart and mind of a good God, despite all that she has lost. Orpah and Ruth both resist her urgings to return to Moab, and then Naomi's response gives us kind of a, a sneak preview of how this story is going to turn for the better and soon. When Naomi says it's pointless for Orpah and Ruth to return with her, she grounds her argument in the fact that, number one, she's too old to have more sons. And even if she did, that's verse 11, even if she did, would these women wait for the sons to grow up and marry them? And what she's referencing is a provision in God's law that was made for widows that says when a man dies and did not leave a son behind, that man's brother was responsible to take the widow as his wife and raise up a son in that man's name. Now, the provision in the law was not very practical in Naomi's case. She had two sons, but they both died. There's no brother to marry Naomi, or to, to marry Orpah or Ruth, rather. She herself is apparently past the age of childbearing, so she's not going to provide any more brothers to these deceased men and she says you know even if those two hurdles were overcome so she she found a husband and she immediately conceived a Ruth and Orpah to wait 20 years to marry young men that will be young enough to be their sons but we'll, we'll say 30 year we're having some problems with this aren't we uh, will they will they want husbands that are 30 years younger than they are. So she's right on the one hand, which is it's pointless. But she's not right in thinking that's the only option. As we're going to find out in the weeks to come, if a brother was not available, a close relative could assume the same responsibilities and marry the widow. Naomi is remembering only a portion of of God's good provision and promises, which is what happens when you're grieving and, and just in depression the way that Naomi is. Later she's going to confess to just say, I'm bitter. That's one reason why we need one another, because when I can't see clearly the goodness and the promises of God, you can speak them to me. And so even as Naomi describes God as one who is kind and gives rest. She doesn't think these things are for her. Note again the end of verse 13. Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi sees God as against her. He's good, but he's against her, and it's going to taint anyone associated with her. You need to get far away from me, she says to her former daughters-in-law. God might be good to others, but not to me right now. Orpah finally relents. She returns to Moab. 
Naomi then turns to Ruth and urges her to do likewise. And listen carefully now to this short dialogue because it is rich with meaning. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now, a few things are more obvious in that little exchange than Ruth is incredibly devoted to Naomi. And Naomi ought to be stunned by this young Moabite woman who says, I am never leaving you. But there's even more than that going on here, more than human devotion, and it's so good. Look at verse 15 again, and Naomi's words about Orpah, how she had gone back to her people and her gods. Whatever influence this Israelite family had had on these two Moabite women, whatever loyalty and affection Orpah may have felt, when it came down to it, Naomi knew where Orpah felt at home, with her people and her gods. By contrast, now note Ruth's words. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And that's way more than loyalty of a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. Ruth wants to become part of the covenant community of Israel. She wants to join them and come into the blessings of the God of Israel. Orpah returned to her people and her gods. Ruth says, no, I'm going to your people and your God. And the fact that this transcends just mere loyalty can be seen in the phrase, where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. Not, when you die, I'm released from my oath, I've taken care of you, death parted us, and I'm heading back to Moab. No. When you die, I'm not going anywhere. Because your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth's devotion to Naomi is incredible, but it is secondary to her determination to become one of God's people. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Many of you know Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Can't go on without noting how much I love Naomi 
She is painfully honest. You know the temptation. How are you doing? Fine. God is good. She didn't say that. She said, I hurt. I'm bitter. I went away full and he brought me back empty. She's unafraid to say, God took it all. She's in agreement with Isaiah 45 that it is God who makes well-being and creates calamity. Life has been hard. She doesn't fake it by putting on a smile and a brave face. She's destitute. She's widowed. She's lost both sons. She's bitter. And she's willing to say to her church, if you will, to her covenant community, I hurt. I'm not endorsing Naomi's bitterness. And it's interesting, the author makes no comment on it. And I think we're simply to understand and to care and to sympathize with her. But I also have, would have us note, Naomi's wrong in verse 21 when she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. She's not empty. She has Ruth. The book is named Ruth and not Naomi for a reason. She has this incredible, and I'm going to argue shortly, godly young woman who has sworn lifelong allegiance to her and who will do her more good in the end than Naomi could ever ask or imagine. But she can't see this now. Her grief is continuing to blind her to the grace of God when the grace of God is walking beside her on the way back from Moab. And even when the story turns clearly and decisively better, especially in the fourth chapter, it's going to be left to the women of Bethlehem to declare that Ruth is better to you than seven sons. One commentator noted that at the beginning, Naomi is too consumed with her grief to appreciate Ruth, and at the end, she's too consumed with her own joy to appreciate Ruth, and it's left for others to sing her praises. So now, chapter one is closed. Naomi is back in her hometown of Bethlehem. Ruth is with her. The barley harvest is just beginning, so the chapter that began in famine is ending in harvest. The chapter that began with Naomi leaving and becoming a refugee is ending with her coming back and living with the covenant people again. The smile of God is starting to peek through those dark clouds of providence, whether Naomi can see it or not. Well, I haven't finished the chapter. I just want to go back and point out a couple things that I think are key to understanding it and that I have found so encouraging. First is this. Depending on what translation you're reading, uh, a particular Hebrew word shows up 12 times in the last 16 verses, maybe rendered return in your Bible. It may be rendered turn back or he brought me back or some combination of those. But 12 times in 16 verses, the Hebrew word for return is used. A kind of repetition is a call to pay attention. Something's going on. Return, return, return. 
12 times. And it becomes even more intriguing when we read in verse 22 that Ruth returned from the country of Moab. We're quite certain Ruth has never been to Israel. How do you return to a place you've never been to? So I think we should ask, why does the author use this word so relentlessly, 12 times? And why does he use it in places that seemingly make no sense? Ruth returned? No, Naomi returned. And Ruth just followed her. No, it says Ruth returned. The answer lies in the dual use of the Hebrew word for return. It can be used rarely, but it is used in the physical sense. I was here, I went over there, I returned. It can be used that way. But by far, the overwhelming use in the Old Testament is to talk about a spiritual return. Return in the Old Testament is a call to repent, not relocate. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, almost all the prophets use it in this sense. Return to the Lord. He will not look upon you in anger. We return. They return. Not by a change of address, but by a change of heart. So in Naomi's case, both are probably in view uh, in, in that call to return. She does undertake a physical journey. She returns to where she'd left. But I think it also speaks of a call to undertake a spiritual journey, to learn to leave her bitterness behind, to, to learn not just to focus on the fact that the Lord takes away, but also the Lord gives. She needs to deal with her bitterness and her despair and start learning once again to trust that she has a God who does good to her. She had been doing precisely what William Cooper's hymn says don't do. She is judging the Lord by feeble sense instead of trusting him for his grace. She lost sight of the fact that behind that frowning providence there hides a smiling face. So she needs to return physically and spiritually to the place where she belongs and where she's then going to be positioned to see the unfolding of God's gracious and perfect plan. She will not always be bitter, but the work of God that's going to melt away that bitterness is going to happen in a little town called Bethlehem and not Moab. So return, Naomi. Return. Return. If you identify at all with Naomi, I urge you to use the call on her life as the call on your life. Naomi's a believer. She speaks well of the Lord. She understands him. She's got pretty good theology overall. But like any one of you, any one of us, she can go where she doesn't belong, let bitterness take root, see only part of the promises, not see the hope, and just develop bitterness. There's a call to return. And I, I love the way Jeremiah used it. He says, return to me, it's God speaking, I will not look upon you in anger. I know you're bitter. I know you're grieving. I brought all those things. But return to me. 
Perhaps there are some of us out there that you've walked with the Lord a long time and you know you're in Moab and not in Bethlehem. You know that you're bitter and judging the Lord by feeble sense and not waiting and watching for that time when his smile will again be upon you. So that's a way that Naomi should return, a way perhaps some of us should return. But what about Ruth? How can she return to a place that she's never been before? In fact, a place that she has no business being. Because according to the law, Ruth has no business in Bethlehem. She has no place in the assembly of God's people. But she returns. What's going on? Well, knowing that it's sometimes better to show than to tell, I think the author has used this return journey of Ruth together with her words about having Naomi's God become her God to clue us into the fact that they're witnessing something amazing here. We're witnessing the conversion of a formerly cursed Gentile woman, a person whose welfare was never to be sought, who is now pursuing God, and I would argue because he has pursued her. How, how did Ruth get to Bethlehem? Because God sent Naomi to Moab. And now God, after saying, you never seek their welfare, God says, I'll seek their welfare. He used famine, for refugee family, the death of her husband to get her to Bethlehem, but through all that frowning providence, he's not only calling Ruth to faith, but also preparing to reveal a smile that no one, no one could have imagined would come out of this tragic beginning. But I want to ask a question, though. I think she's coming to faith, but how and why? Think about her exposure to the God of Israel. She'd, grow up in, she'd grown up in Moab. She knew she had no place, no business in Israel. They were sworn enemies at one level. She had grown up around pagan gods her entire life. She knows her now um, in-law's story. She knows about the famine. She knows about Elimelech's death. She obviously knows about her husband's death and her brother-in-law's death. He never gave them children, but instead made them, made them both widows like Naomi. All that God has done, all that providence that he reigns over has left these three women destitute and laboring in the fields of Moab. So somehow Ruth looks at this frowning providence and comes to the place where she says, I want your God to be my God. That's strange. How does that happen? But we're not told in any great detail, but I'm going to ask you to think on this for a moment. Naomi, for all her pain and loss and bitterness, never cursed God. She never said, I'm done. She never said, there's no point. She understood something very difficult was happening in her life, but she still says, he gives rest and he deals kindly. And she returns broken, bitter, Almost hopeless, but she returns. Here's the point. You don't know what power your testimony has on someone else when everything is going well in your life. Good report from the doctor. 
good job, solid marriage, kids are doing well, everything's going well, and your testimony is consistently one of, let me tell you what God did for me this week. That's good. But you know something? Even pagans want all those good things. And so it's hard to tell. Are you appealing to the spirit or the flesh? When you say, look at all the good things God has done in my life, true as they are and grateful and genuine as your gratitude is, you don't know what they're seeing. But the testimony that's almost irrefutable is when someone loses everything and it weighs heavily on them as it did Naomi and they still cling to God and they declare him not only to be sovereign over their troubles, but he's kind and he's good and he gives rest and I'm going to return to him. That testimony shuts a skeptic's mouth and it opens her eyes. When they watch you go through chemo or bury a loved one or go through a bankruptcy and lose your home and everything you've worked for and you're still hanging on to God. You, you, you might be struggling with bitterness. You might be struggling with depression but you still declare God to be good and trustworthy. That gets people's attention. And that's what Ruth saw. She saw a woman who lost everything and still spoke well of God. Ruth had a front seat to Naomi's grief, and she had a front seat to hear Naomi speak well of God through her grief. We're not told with any certainty that that's what did it, but I don't think it takes much imagination to get there. But I want to be careful not to make the story too much about Naomi or even too much about Ruth, though the story bears her name, because the story is about something much bigger than either of these women or their faith or their character. But as it unfolds, I just want you to note how the plot has taken shape, how Ruth just happens to return to Bethlehem. She would not be there apart from Naomi. And Naomi's willingness to return to God, even after that lifetime of troubles, that's the first five verses of the book. And now maybe, just maybe, something really good will happen because Ruth returned to Bethlehem. As we close, I think you should know that William Cooper wrote those lines of, of quoted behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. He wrote those lines in the midst of profound personal despair. He suffered numerous bouts of depression. He was tormented by dreams that, that came upon him and said, you are eternally condemned. He attempted suicide at least three times. He was institutionalized twice. And yet, the frowning clouds of providence would part every now and then and Cooper would see the smiling face of God. And that's what he clung to and that's what this little book of Ruth would have you cling to also. I've noted some of us rightly identify with Naomi. Maybe some of us need to identify with Ruth as well. Perhaps you did not grow up as a person of faith and you may not be a person of faith now. You're here with a family member. People sometimes just walk in 
and visit. They're all welcome. Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home, but, but you were not interested. The call of this first chapter of Ruth to you is this. Return. Twelve times, return. Like Ruth, you're called to repent and return to a place you've never been before, but a place that you very much belong. Because you are created in God's image. You are created for fellowship with him. Sin has broken that fellowship, and yet God says return. He's made a way. We sing about it. We talk about it. I'm not going to go there at any length right now. In fact, if you want, these are out in the foyer. I love it when somebody can take something as glorious as a gospel and put it in two or three pages. But you are created to live among a covenant people and worship and serve and delight a God who calls you to himself. The book of Ruth is going to end with a genealogy. Um, the New Testament will pick it up and they're going to trace it from Bethlehem all the way to a manger in Bethlehem about 1,200 years later. The God-man Jesus Christ is a descendant of Ruth. God gave him to us and through him he says, come home, return until you place your faith in him. You'll never be at home. And finally, is, is, I've been using a phrase that, that some of you might have picked up on, what wasn't intentional, but how do you go home to a place you've never been before? And if it sounds familiar, it should, because our, our poets talk that way. If you're over above about 30 or 40, you know who John Denver is. Here's what he wrote. He was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to a place he had never been before. He left yesterday behind him. You might say he was born again. You don't have to be a person of faith to know there's something in you that says this world is not my home. C.S. Lewis said if you find that this nothing in this world that satisfies you, then maybe it's a sign you were made for another world. And so the call in this first chapter on your life is to come home. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for a beautiful story. Thank you for such a human story. We can enter into this. We can identify with the characters. And now, Lord, I just pray that we'll hear the call on their lives as a call on our lives and return, whatever that looks like, whether that's a repentance for a believer once again drawing near to you or whether that's the repentance of someone who's never drawn near to you. Let it happen. Call us back from a far country the same way you called Ruth and Naomi. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.